Did you guys get any results back from that Taekwondo tournament we went to several weeks ago? No? Um, two kids got two gold medals, so I owe them something. I, they're, um, the parents that went, they didn't, they didn't want them to go to Disneyland because they wanted them to come back home to get back to school. So I have to take them to Great America or something. I don't know. But so there's two of those guys that did that. And then there's a couple other folks that got one gold medal and silvers and bronzes and things like that. So, but they did really well. There's a fourth place trophy there. There was 82 schools involved. And so that's in there. So, yeah, they did well. Um, yeah, maybe we'll just use that to fund our church. No, I'm kidding. We're going to do uh, Matthew chapter 6. Starting, uh, we're going to start a new chapter in Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, all the people here. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless them for the things that are going on in their lives. I pray that you would uh, give them hope and give them comfort. Uh, for those who are, are doing well and, and things are just going really well, uh, praise you, God, for that. And we thank you for that. And we ask God during uh, a healthy state that they would prepare for a time where things more challenging will come their way. Because um, we, we know that you care about our character, so that's an ongoing thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Christianity. Not so much about the absence of wrongdoing as much as it is about the presence of doing right. And there's a, a quote attributed to a social and political philosopher, Edmund Burke, that says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 21 tells us, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's not so much about a passive existence as much as it is about an aggressive goodness. And we've established that the Sermon on the Mount is not about laws. It's about a life in the kingdom of God, a life in which the laws of God are naturally fulfilled within us because of who we are and who we've become. And in Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 6, Jesus addresses two desires that hinder the growth of us in the kingdom. And one of, one of those things is a social thing, and the other thing is a financial. The, other, the social desire is to gain the approval of others by doing praiseworthy actions, by doing commendable actions before people. And the financial desire is to secure ourselves with material goods, material wealth. And today we'll talk about this desire to have others' approval. Next week we're going to go into the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, as we don't have enough time to do both of those things tonight. And then the following week we're going to be talking about the desire for material wealth. And then that will wrap up chapter 6 for us. And Jesus continues to answer two primary questions for us. Who's really well off and who is truly good? And he's going to continue revealing to us what the kingdom heart is. And it's easy for us to deceive ourselves that we're developing kingdom hearts when we're really not. And one of those deceptions that hinder our development is, is our reputation. Another one is our wealth. But that's going to be covered in a couple of weeks. So let's talk about reputation. We put a lot of stake in reputation. And we use our reputation to manage our lives because in our culture, we value it, right? So we want to put things on our resume. We want people to understand where we came from and our backgrounds, where we got educated and our experience and all this stuff, right? 
Because if we look good, if we smell good, have a lot of money, drive a nice car, look like we have it all together religiously, then we've made it. And it's actually not a new thing. This was prominent in Jesus' time as well. People believed that if they had a reputation to perform religious duties, that they could earn the blessings of God. That God blessed them, actually. And remember chapter 5, verse 20, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is addressing this. See, if we allow the desire to have the approval of others determine how we live our life, then we aren't living in the kingdom of God. We're living like a scribe and Pharisee because that desire focuses on visible actions and not on the source of the action, which is our heart. Matthew chapter 23. Let's let's go there first and go through several verses there, starting in verse 5. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. See, these religious leaders were guilty of of publicizing, of advertising their righteousness. And phylacteries were were these small leather boxes which contained um, these these tiny scrolls inside them. And on them, they had these scriptures. And then, you know, they'd be these little scrolls. They'd put it in the phylactery and then they'd, they'd tie it around their head. Or they tie it around their arm. And if you go to the Western Wall today in Jerusalem, you'll see Orthodox Jews praying like this and moving back and forth. And you'll see like these boxes on their heads or their arms. And that's what the phylacteries were. And, and the phylacteries and the borders of their garments, borders of their garments trying to show like, hey, I'm a religious guy here. Check out my border. Right. So we're warning. And they did this because it was actually conforming to Mosaic law. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, and Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 40. And they figured that the broader the phylactery, the larger the border on their garments, it showed them to be more spiritual. And it's not that different from today, right? People kind of don't wear these huge boxes on their heads or these broad, these broad borders, but they do it in their jewelry, or they wear Christian t-shirts, or they have bumper stickers, um, fishes on their cars, different things, right? Verse 6, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They loved when people admired them spiritually. They wanted the seats of honor at parties, at the synagogue, and they loved the titles and the honor of being called a rabbi, like us today, pastor doctor, right? But Jesus says in verse 8, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you, you shall be your servant. See, in our fleshly desires, we look at religious greatness by how many people serve us or honor us. And Jesus determines greatness by how we serve others, how we honor others. And there are churches that elevate the role of pastor or a religious worker, and this shouldn't be so. Jesus was the greatest among them, yet he speaks of himself as a servant. And we need to be imitators of Jesus and not not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, I've said before, righteousness is not opposed to effort, but righteousness is opposed to earning. You and I can't earn anything, right? Jesus did it all for us on the cross, right? So you can't earn anything. 
But God is not opposed to our effort towards righteousness. It's good to attempt doing good, but Jesus wants something deeper than just our actions because our actions can actually be deceptive. See, Jesus wants our hearts. What's behind? What's the source of those actions? He wants us in complete honesty and genuinely who we are, right? Not simply by actions that can be deceptively done with the wrong heart. I can say I love you, but I don't mean it. I can say I forgive you, but I don't mean it. I can say I'll help you, but I don't really want to, right? So it's about our heart and where that's coming from. So Jesus tackles one of the things we place so much value in, our reputation, how others view us, or how we gain approval from others, because these things don't determine a good life, a godly life. Matthew chapter 6 begins with verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Several weeks ago, we talked about adultery in the heart. And just as adultery in the heart is looking in order to sexually desire, to improperly do a good deed is to do a good deed in order to be seen. If our goal is to impress others with how devote we are, you know, God lets you do that. If our aim is to be noticed by others because we want religious respectability, God lets us go about it. But know that He stands aside from that. God is courteous to your wishes. If it's a human recognition that you want, if it's a human esteem that you want, then that's what you're going to get. But it just won't involve Him and His rewards. And if you are anticipating to be rewarded by God... You're not. He stands aside from that. If you want human recognition, that's what you're getting. Okay? God is courteous to your wishes. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Have you all heard of this uh, phrase, lip service? have, right? How people just say something without much to substantiate what they're saying. There's also something called eye service. How people just do things for other people to see without substantiating it with what is in their heart. They're just doing these actions so that they can put up a facade, act like something else, pretend other things are okay. They're not. And Jesus desires us to be free from eye service, of being enslaved to the eyes and opinions of others. And it's opinions, whether they're good or bad opinions. See, when I was single, I wanted to appear frugal, simple. Same as now, really. It's a good thing, right? And I wanted to to do something that appeared to be good. And when I was single, I drove an 81 Volkswagen diesel Rabbit. And I recognize some of you that actually rode in that. When you, so you guys remember this. And it, the, the head covering kind of was falling down, so it kind of like draped over your head while you're in it. And um, it shook violently. It was so violent. Like you'd start it up and it was just like... Right? And every time I rode in it, it was great. It was like I was getting a massage. It was great. And it was so loud. Right? I had to shout. So I was, I was dating my wife at the time. Um, she wasn't my wife yet. I was dating my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now. And um, it, I was like, how are you doing? She was like, what? Are you okay? I can't hear you. 
And so it was so loud. It was really difficult. But the uncomfortable thing was, you know, in diesel cars nowadays, you can start them right up, right? They're like spark plugs. This car had glow plugs. So you had to turn it just three quarters of the way, wait for the glow plugs to warm up and then start it. This thing took forever, especially during winter. So it'd be so uncomfortable, right? You're talking, it's like, so um, when were you born? Right? And then after I got to like graduating high school, then it was warmed up. And so then you'd start it, but then you couldn't talk anymore because it was so loud, right? But anyway, a dear friend of mine um, called me on, 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 on something because... What I did was I used this as my filter car. Um, I didn't want girls dating me based on what I had materially. Right? So it, it, it was so that my car sh- would show that I appeared down to earth, that I used my f- financial resources well, that I lived well below my means, and, and that I was trying to just show that, you know, if you can accept me with this car, you're going to accept me forever. Right? So... So then a friend of mine called me on this because it was, it was more than that, he felt. And he was, he was saying that, you know, you're doing this so-called good, but you're kind of doing it in order to be seen. Everyone knows that you have this good job, that you can do something more than that, yet you're like parading around this thing. And, you know, there might have been some truth to it. The, the truth is I'm really frugal and I'm simple. I'm, I'm no different. So... But, but there, was, there was an element of truth to it, because I was proud to drive that thing. And it was still one of my favorite cars to this very day. So after, after it worked out being my filter car, because Katie did end up marrying me, um, despite having to shout at me in the car and receiving wonderful massages, you know, I got rid of it. See, Jesus is concerned when we do good things to be seen by others, just as much as he is concerned about us avoiding evil, if we're doing so because we're afraid of being seen. It goes both ways. Now, it is better to avoid doing evil for fear of being seen since we at least avoid the evil, right? But this is not necessarily a commendable act since it shows that we would disobey God if it weren't for the opinions of others. What Jesus does in the next several verses is he gives us three illustrations of the correct motivation when performing commendable actions. And the first illustration is philanthropy. The second is prayer. And then the third illustration is fasting. So let's move on to verse 2, talking about philanthropy. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. See, for those who do good deeds so that they may be seen, Jesus uses this word hypocrite for them. See, hypocrite is a term that the ancient Greeks used for an actor. And later it became a term used to refer to anyone who was practicing deceit. And Jesus alone uses this term in the New Testament 17 times. And the people of this time could surely relate to what Jesus was saying when he used this term hypocrite. See, theater was huge back in Jesus' day, and the Romans built these great theaters to showcase this type of entertainment. So when Jesus uses the term hypocrite, it was easy for his audience to identify those who acted religiously devout like the actors of the time. That it just really wasn't them. They were acting. Verse 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will Himself reward you openly. Jesus teaches that the proper way to do a good deed is to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now this doesn't mean that you try to hide your good deeds. 
And this also isn't done by trying to ignore your right hand because by ignoring it, you're actually paying attention to it, right? You can't ignore something and not pay attention to it. Try it with a kid. Don't look at that animal. Right? You can't do it. Instead, Jesus' point is that those who have been transformed by the life in the kingdom are the kind of people who don't even notice their own good deeds. It just comes naturally. It just comes automatically from them. Just like swimming, riding a bike, driving a car, speaking your own native tongue. It just comes naturally, right? So the person who gives without regard to who's looking and doesn't even notice it as anything special is the very person who has God's attention and becomes God's partner in doing good. And the need for public recognition is suffered by our religious world today. I just came back from a visit to my alma mater. It's a Christian university. And I noticed that instead of trumpets being blown when when some act of giving is done to announce a charitable deed, nowadays... We have ribbon-cutting ceremonies with the people present and then their name written on the building, right? Just like on any of your college campuses. Oh, that guy donated that, right? Let's look at the second illustration, prayer. Verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets where people can see them most, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Again, Jesus uses this term hypocrite because it's all an act. And they want to appear devout, but they're not as they appear. They desire to make an impression on people and not on God. And again, they get rewarded by the recognition of people. That's what they get. God is courteous to that, right? Hypocrites pray to be seen and heard by others. They pray to impress God. And they're often worried about how they'll look before God And they're not really cared about that as much as they care about how people will see them if their prayers don't get answered. How are they going to view me if God doesn't answer my prayers? It's not so much about their relationship with God and and how they're communicating with God. It's how much they're showing other people their own prayer life. And something we have to be careful of is how we pray in public or public settings, group settings. See, oftentimes we, we mean well in our prayers, but sometimes we concern ourselves too much with how we sound to others. I'm guilty of it too. Like, oh, I don't want to sound stupid in front of all these smart people, right? So I got to pray with bigger words, right? So if there's any ego involved in our prayers, we really have to drop that, right? We're talking to God. We're not fooling Him at all. He already knows, like, you don't know a lot of words. So, verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is important. If you want to conduct real theological research, if you want true understanding of what and who God is, you don't go to seminary, you don't have to stick your noses in books and listen to all these people. The only thing you have to do is pray. You have access to the very God that created the universe. And He will answer you. If you want to meet God, you meet Him in prayer. And notice that Jesus addresses how not to pray. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. See, prayer is not a mechanical process, right? It's it's a conversation. Can you imagine talking to someone just that says the same things over and over again? So you're like, how was your day? It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. 
Or, God, I love you, 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 I love you. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. True prayer is not vain repetition, right? It's not babbling. It's not worrying, right? Prayer is an intelligent conversation. Just like you would have with your peers, with a professor, with a teacher, a doctor, uh, your mechanic. It's, it's an intelligent conversation, right? Conversations about things that matter mutually, that are of mutual concern with each other. That's what prayer is. God cares about the things that you care about, and you care about the things that God cares about, and you guys talk about it. Prayer. About matters of personal concern. God, I'm really struggling with this. I can't make my mortgage payment. He cares about that. Talk about it. Talk amongst yourselves. He cares, right? And that's prayer. And worry is not a conversation. Worry is an attitude. So, let's jump to verses 14 and 15 for a minute. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Right? Notice here how God engages us in mutual concerns. Okay? How He engages us in conversation and in action. And this is about mutual love. And this is the spirit of forgiveness. And these are the basic elements of any relationship. Okay, back to verse 8 now. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. It's okay if you don't know exactly what to say or how to say it. God can see your heart, and if you can open your heart honestly before God, He's great enough to understand it. And if anything, you can ask Him to teach you how to pray, which the disciples did in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. Now the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that's going to be shared next week. But know that prayer is the most one of the most important things we have to learn to do as disciples. And prayer teaches us how to be in life, how to live in life. Like the Sermon on the Mount, it's about life. Life where the laws of God eventually become naturally fulfilled within us because of the people we are. It's not about laws and following certain laws. And know that God is not against public prayer or written prayers or, or corporate prayers or liturgy. You can be just as guilty of impressing man with being informal just as being formal. Just like performing works that are appearing to be good or appearing to be bad. It's, it's just your audience, right? It's your attitude behind those things. See, I have a friend who's been a pastor for over 20 years who never took uh, an offering or, or any type of collection until this past year. And the reason wasn't because the church's finances were bad, because actually they were better than they've ever been before. But he decided to start passing the plate. And why was that? Because he found that they were prideful in their informal ways of receiving tithes and offerings. So it's not so much what you do, right? Or it's not so much what you do, it's about how you go about doing those things. Pride can go both ways. Pride can go to either extreme. So it's really a testing of our own hearts to see... If I'm this way, I, okay, I gotta move more towards this now. I gotta make sure my heart's right. It's not about your action. It's about how you go about doing things. Let's move on to the third illustration, fasting. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their rewards. 
But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to be men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The hypocrites want to impress others by showing how difficult their fast is. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a 40-day fast. Yeah, I'm only on day one. And Jesus, Jesus teaches us that we are to look as though we're not fasting during a fast, right? He's like, take a shower, brush your teeth, right? Do stuff. But Jesus isn't wanting us to fake it either, right? He wants us to nourish ourselves with Him. Notice again that if you're seeking the recognition of man, you'll get that reward you're seeking. But it's not His reward. And if you're not fasting properly, you, you have to get the sympathy of other people and the recognition of other people because you, you're not being nourished by God. Because you're not doing it His way. So in, in order for you to be encouraged to finish your fast, you need the other people to pat you on the back and encourage you. Oh, you, you can do your fast uh, just 38 days more. right? So... In order to be sustained by God during a fast, it has to be done in secret. And remember when Jesus was in that long fast after his baptism? Satan comes along, starts tempting him, and says, Hey, turn the stone to bread. Right? And, and he made an important statement that's helpful to understand the kingdom of God here. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. What he says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4 is he says, It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he's referring to manna. Manna means what is it? That's what it means, right? It was an edible, digestible form of matter suited to meet the physical needs of humans, right? So he supplies this to them that they can eat. And it was produced directly by God's action or word. It was not something that was already in place in nature, right? God created it. And God is not limited to what He already has in place in our world to meet our needs. God is able to directly supply the physical needs of the body when we fast with faith towards Him. And just as manna met the physical needs of the wandering Israelites, so Jesus, the bread of life, meets not only our spiritual needs, but He meets our physical needs. John chapter 6, verses 48-51 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. See, fasting and nourishing ourselves with Jesus go hand in hand. The spiritual world and the physical world, they're closely knit. And how we tap into the spiritual world can result in incredible results in the physical world. See, God nourishes, God sustains, God renews our soul, both physically and spiritually. Now, there's something I want to point out that's common in all three of these illustrations. And Jesus uses these, this thing, and the very thing that I'm going to talk about is secrecy. Something that I don't think a lot of us think about as Christians, because in our culture, we want to advertise things. We want to show everybody our successes, right? Look how much we've raised, guys. Look at the trophy. Look at the gold medals we won. All this stuff. We want recognition, right? So those kids just got their rewards. Nothing from God. So, so um, let me go through these illustrations. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4. 
that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Verse 18, So that you do not appear to be men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Why is secrecy such an important spiritual discipline? Because it frees us of the control others have over us with their opinions. Remember the term eye service? Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 6 writes, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, he writes, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. We are to be free from eye service. The motivation for us to not do bad things and to do good things should be free of pleasing men. The motivation should be for God only. The spiritual discipline of secrecy helps us break the desire of winning others' approval, preserving our religious reputations, valuing others' opinions of us. A discipline is an activity that's within our power that enables us to do what we can't do in our direct efforts. It's something to prepare us for something, right? So the discipline of an athlete is to prepare them for the competition. And so the discipline of secrecy prepares us for kingdom living. And Jesus is encouraging us into a discipline of secrecy to abstain from causing our, our, our qualities and our good deeds from being known. So you see, if we, if we give, if we pray and fast in such a way that no one knows, our motivation can't be derived from people. It's from God. We'll be free from eye service, free from trying to please other people. It doesn't matter if people know that or what we do or don't do because we do it for God. We'll be able to experience a relationship with God independent of the opinions of others. And secrecy helps us lose the hunger for for justification, for fame, or the attention that we get from others. And as we practice this discipline, we'll learn to love to be unknown. And we'll even be able to accept misunderstanding from others without the loss of our personal joy our personal purpose, or our peace. And the way we purify our motives is that we act in secret. And keep in mind that we can't make this a legalism either. We can't make this a law that we only do good deeds, we only pray, we only fast in secret, because this is not a law, right? You can go to either extreme and it's, it's wrong. It's about our heart, right? It's a spiritual discipline. And one of the greatest misleading beliefs of the Christian faith and one of the greatest acts of unbelief is the thought that our virtues and that our spiritual acts need to be publicized in order to be known. And the very effort that some religious people put forth to advertise and endorse themselves as Christians is proof of their lack of faith. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now the Gospels tell us how hard Jesus tried to avoid crowds, right? He, he really tried secrecy. He tried, but he failed at that. His works couldn't be hidden, right? His light, too bright. But if it was possible, or if it is possible for your works to be hidden, your, your good works to be hidden, he tried. 
perhaps they should be hidden if they can be hidden. Right? And we need to be able to place our acts of faith in the hands of God and not into our own hands. We need to leave it to God to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. That shouldn't be something that we decide to do. Oh, that was something great that our church did. Let's, let's, let's advertise that. Let's show that in the bulletin. Right? It's about His works, not our works. And secrecy teaches humility and love before God and others. It allows us to see others in the best possible light. And it allows us to cheer for them to appear better and do better than us. It makes Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 possible. What's Philippians chapter 2 verse 3? Let nothing be done through selfish, selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Can you see that freedom? Can you sense the weight off of your back out of this competitive nature that we've created? And if you want to feel free, the next time you're in a competitive situation, pray that others will do better than you. That they will receive praise. That God will use them more than they, that He uses you. Cheer for them. Encourage them. Be happy for their successes. Can you imagine if all Christians did this? It would be glorious, wouldn't it? Instead of trying to compare like, oh, how come that church does more social justice stuff? How come that church, how come they, they, they get more involved in modern day slavery? How come, how come they do this? How come they do that? Instead, it's like, great! Praise God! We're going to pray for you. We're going to encourage you. Great job. Keep going, guys. Right? And so, one last thing I want to point out about secrecy is that it allows God to work in people without us taking things into our own hands. If you really want to see God work, keep quiet about things. Pray, and then see what happens. Right? I can't tell you how many times we've been in financial need at this church only to have the needs met by God. We often don't share financial needs here. Sometimes we do, a handful of times we have. But, you know, on the times that we don't, it's so awesome to see how the Lord provides. Every mission trip that Regeneration has been involved in has fallen short financially. Every single one. In less than a week before we leave, God always provides. And I remember this one time that He even provided within 10 cents. And it's always not like an abundant provision, like, oh, look at that, we're over $10,000. It's always, oh man, we're under $10,000. What are we going to do? We already bought the tickets. It's already like charged and like none of the money's coming in. And it's just like days before and then when the money comes in, it's always like less than like 100 bucks or something that we barely make it over. But it's always God. We can't take credit for it. We didn't write support letters saying, oh, we're short $10,000 or we're short $100. We're short this. We're, that. we're just like, God pray, right? And then He always provides for us. And if we see needs met because we ask of God alone and not of man, our faith in God increases. But if we always tell others of our needs, and we, we'll have little faith in God because we're placing our faith in man. And our spiritual life suffers because of that. And there's another common thing I want to point out about chapter 6, and it's this, this phrase, they have their reward. This is something that I struggle with myself. Do you know how much time I've wasted thinking about what others think than what God is thinking? I'm shocked at myself. 
How much time I spend at replying to emails trying to justify myself on what I said from the pulpit? It's shameful. In the past two weeks, I've, had off, I've, I've really had a lot of time to process this. And it's something that anyone in leadership here has to think about as well. I've sometimes been so concerned with appeasing people or trying to move them or have them hear a great teaching at Regeneration, but I should really be asking how God feels about the service, how God feels about the sermon. Otherwise, they have their reward applies to me. And if God was doing nothing here at Regeneration, would it matter as long as people kept coming because they thought things were good? If God was not blessing us, but we were able to run this church well because of the efforts of the ministry staff and the volunteer staff, what good is that? I'm sure we have more people coming and financially we're better off than we've ever been before, but so what? I'd be guilty of eye service and gaining the rewards from people rather than God if I just cared about what people thought. And then I would be fooled to believe that I didn't need God because I just need you coaxing me or patting my back or telling me that I did a good job or that your sermon, you said the right things. I don't want that. Sorry guys, I love you, but I don't want to do this for you. I'm tired of being consumed by what you think. I need to be consumed by what God thinks. I can't just say things that you want to hear. Which is what I feel driven towards sometimes, because I feel the pressure of like, oh, I might lose that person if I don't say that, or if I don't appease them, or whatever. Past two weeks, I don't care anymore. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people give me opinions on what I should say or what I shouldn't say. And you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of what God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 31 and 32. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. God forbid that we become a church like that, that just likes coming in here to hear some good songs and some mediocre teaching. God forbid. Now, I'm not telling you guys, that these, telling you guys these things so that you stop giving me feedback because you'll give me feedback anyway. It doesn't matter, right? I welcome your feedback, really, on my sermons and how things are done at the church. I'm not doing this to tell you to stop, okay? It's actually quite opposite. It's more for myself to confess to you that I struggle with eye service. But in my confession, I want to let you know that I'm attempting to not get your approval as my primary aim. I really want God's approval. You are entitled to think whatever you want. You can submit to me whatever you want, and, and we can talk about things. And there are times when I think you are wrong, right? And I'll try to help you understand as, as gently as I can where I'm coming from and where we are as a church, where we're coming from. And there are times that I'm wrong. And I'll have to rethink how I do things and how we do things as a community. There are times that I'm humbled by what I've said and people share with me and, and I've gained from that conversation. Like You're absolutely right. I'm not right all the time. And I'm open to those things. But regardless of our actions, they should be done in love. They shouldn't be undercutting. They shouldn't be behind people's backs. They shouldn't be um, trying to 
diminish something or ruin someone's reputation, they should be done in love. We are to be pleasing to the Lord, right? And know that you can only be served when whoever is serving you is serving the Lord first. Whether it's myself, a church staff person, an elder, a church volunteer, whomever it is, you can only be served by someone who serves the Lord first. And we'll do all each other good if we're focused primarily on serving God and God alone. Let's pray. Lord, forgive me of desiring uh, eye service. Pray, God, that uh, you would work within our church community to do things solely for you. And from that, God, it will affect others. And we know that by pleasing you and by loving you and by following your direction, the byproduct will be that we love others. The byproduct will be that we serve others. Ultimately, Lord, um, we want to be pleasing to you and we want to glorify you. Not for other people to see, not for other people to recognize the good things or the lack of bad things or the bad things that we do. We are to do all things to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.